Thanks for the input. We're going <clears throat> we're gonna to move on and um, do a little bit of, of training. I'm going to talk about having appropriate boundaries in our lives. It, it applies specifically to group life, but it also has some application potentially to work and family life as well. And again, if you're thinking, <clears throat> why would anyone struggle with boundaries, then you probably don't struggle with that. But many, many people do struggle at some level with, with boundaries. And it might, even if you don't struggle, it might change for you. Surprisingly, it might change for you in the future depending on circumstances because there are some people who don't struggle with boundaries that much who circumstances change internally and externally, and all of a sudden they find themselves in a new place of struggling, and they never, they never thought they would. <clears throat> I'll give you two books. There's probably more out there, but I'll give you two that I've found particularly helpful. One is just called Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend. And the other is, um, I, I, it's a longer book. It's a little harder to read than Boundaries, and he's not a believer. He's a, a Jewish psychologist called A Failure of Nerve. Very direct guy. He has no failure of nerve, but it's a, it's a very helpful book. I found it very helpful, and not just in ministry, but in, in a number of leadership situations. So let me, let me give us some diagnostic questions just to get us thinking. This is not to inflict guilt, but to get us thinking about where we might be on this topic. So I'll go through some of these questions, and not asking for input or to rank yourself, but just to think about it. How much does your need to be needed impact your emotions, your feelings, and then how much does it impact your actions? For some people, the need to be needed impacts mostly their emotions, but it doesn't directly impact what they decide to do. They decide to do based on other factors. For some people, it it impacts their emotions and their actions both. To what degree do you believe you can fix people? How much role do you think you have in fixing people? Or what level do you think you can help people? There was a lady who committed suicide in our wing recently and she had attempted years ago several years ago and so the potential for people around her to think maybe we could have done more we would have done different all those kind of things and and um, it's, it's just not always the case obviously we believe we can help people or why would we be leading but how much do you think your choices can actually change people and a good gauge of this of where you might be on this is how often do you find yourself outworking or outworrying the people you're trying to help? That would be kind of a, a practical gauge because it's, it's generally not a good, good idea to work harder than the people you're trying to help. It's certainly not good to worry more about them than they're worrying about themselves. Third, how much do you tend to live by, this is a subjective question, but how much do you tend to live by other people's expectations of what you should do versus your own settled convictions? For instance, you know, I personally felt the pull of people complaining about the ministry over the years, and generally I felt it emotionally, and, and uh, you know, I tend, my main emotion tends to be mad, Christie's tends to be sad, so I tend to get mad, that's my go-to emotion, and, but on a, on a, emotionally I can I feel that pull, on occasion I have change directions based on complaints because a complaint might be valid even if it's given in a very unhelpful way it might still be valid but it may not be and so the question is do you live more by vision or by the demands expectations and complaints of other people because complaints and demands are not a good strategy complaining is not actually a strategy but we can sometimes develop tactics live our life based on 
people's demands, expectations, and their complaining, rather than by a broader, more comprehensive vision. <clears throat> so fourth question, how much do you need for people to like you and to think that you are a good spiritual person and how much does that impact you emotionally and how much does that impact you volitionally? How much does it impact on the inside and how much does it impact your choices? My daughter Casey, who I got to spend some time with last week, has become something of an Enneagram aficionado in a, <clears throat> along with a few other hundred million people, it seems. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. If you do, she's a one and I'm told I'm an eight. But whether it's the flag page, Myers-Briggs, or all, any number of, a, of these personality inventories, what they all demonstrate is that we have certain tendencies based on how God has wired us up and what we've experienced. And all people, whether you're a 1 to a 9 or an ENTJ or ESFP or whatever, struggle with people pleasing to a degree, but not everybody struggles to the same degree. Some of it's personality, how God's wired you. <clears throat> Some of it's what's happened to you in the past. But in terms of learning to... I don't know that if you're wired a certain way, you're ever going to get around having that emotional pull when people complain, demand, and expect. But growth in Christian maturity is going to lead all of us, no matter if you're a one to a nine, it's going to lead us to live more consistently out of vision rather than people's expectations, complaining, and demanding. And so we can all grow <clears throat> in living apart from the opinions of others. Galatians 1.10, Paul said, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of Christ? If I'm trying to win the approval of men, <clears throat> I'm not a servant of Christ. At that point, I'm no longer serving Christ. Another diagnostic question, are you, do, you, do you feel like you would be more likely to rejoice or to become jealous or insecure if others around you or under you provide help that you can't or don't provide. Or maybe even you provided help and then they didn't perceive it as help and someone else provides help, the same help or less, and they talk about how helped they were. You know, how does that impact you? What is the pull on your heart? And it's going to pull on everybody. But an emotional pull is different from a pull that, that dictates our, our moods and our choices. <clears throat> so I'm going to retell... Some of you have heard this before over the years, and it's a, I think it's an important story. It's been a very important story for me, <clears throat> a parable, not from the Bible, but a parable of how to live both compassionate and strategic as a leader. It's the parable of the, of the disaster, and again, you've some, probably half of you have heard this before, maybe more, but some of you haven't. But in this story, in this parable, there is a, <clears throat> a nationwide, national-level disaster and a person lands, a, a medical professional lands, whose job it is is to come in and provide care for this nation. They land, and, they, and they're walking, as they're walking to the command tent, they're walking past the dead and the dying. And moved with great compassion, <clears throat> it takes them a whole day just to get to the command control tent because they're just helping people. They're there for six months. At the end of six months, they're completely burned out because they've gone... 20 hours a day with no rest, no recreation. And when they leave, the, the infrastructure of the nation is now broken down. More people are suffering and dying. The replacement lands. This person walks past the dead and the dying. This person sleeps. They eat. They exercise. Their heart's broken. But at the end of six months, the nation's turned around. People are not dying anymore. The infrastructure's in place. And so the, this is a, 
The question is, which one was compassionate? Both. Which one was strategic? One. And so it's a parable of compassionate and strategic leadership. And I'm not advocating for trading one imbalance for the other. So one imbalance would be a person with no boundaries, not enough um, internal what what Friedman calls a, a, a person who's well differentiated, that they they live out of their core, not out of all the chaos around them and demands around them. So it's not going from someone who has no boundaries, is not well differentiated, to someone who lives in complete self-protection and self-preservation. <clears throat> a good friend of mine who, because of his background and personality, he was a, would be a classic codependent guy. He's gotten him into a lot of trouble over the years. And he finally learned how to not live that way. But what he did was he went completely over into self-protection, self-preservation, began to hide out. And now he's trying to find his way back into some balance. And so the balance is, is to learn to live sacrificial, a life of service as a component of faithfulness. So let me give you a key ministry goal along these lines. A key ministry goal <clears throat> would be to be servant leaders who ensure that everyone that wants help gets help. That would be, a, 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 I think, for me, an appropriate ministry goal. I'm a servant leader who ensures that everyone who wants help gets help. So let me unpack that. Everyone who wants help gets it. Some, may, some people may say they want help, but based on their persistent actions, they don't actually want help. So it's not just what they say, it's what they do. And if they don't do anything with the help you're giving them, it's unlikely they actually want help. They may want comfort, and it's okay, but they don't want help. Second... I want to provide the help that they, I believe they actually need, not necessarily what they want or believe they need, because there, there are many situations where as a leader, someone who you're leading believes desperately they need this. I'm in a situation now where this person believes they need this help. I'm convinced that's not what they need. They need something else. And so, again, it's not what they want or think they need, because I've got to control me. So I'm not responsible to care for... As a, as a chaplain in the military, Oliver and I are not responsible, not responsible to care for everyone. We're responsible to ensure that all are cared for. <clears throat> and those can be two different things. And then if I believe I must provide direct care for everybody, it's unlikely I'm going to be able to ensure all, that all people are cared for. So I have pastor friends who, are, who burn completely out because they feel like they have to provide direct care for every felt need rather than ensuring care for every real need. And you can see the difference. Direct care for every felt need, good luck with that. <clears throat> but ensuring care for every felt need, that's obtainable. That can be done. And so this servant leader lifestyle requires sacrifice and strategy. It's a, a long-term sustainable plan for investing our lives. And it is a servant leadership lifestyle. So here's some, <clears throat> some strategic choices related to that ministry goal. If that's your ministry goal, and it is one of my ministry goals, and, and then let me give you some strategic choices. You have to stay, this, there's no news value in this, but you have to stay healthy personally, which means you have to set limits and boundaries around your time and life. Having said that, <clears throat> and, and, if you're in a, and if you're in the middle of a time of transition and trouble, then you could start throwing pencils at me and saying, boo, hissed, you know, 
easy for you to say your kids are all launched or whatever. There are going to be times when life is going to be imbalanced, specifically times of transitions and troubles. And there are going to be times when your life is, imba- is imbalanced and the people you're leading is imbalanced. And, and so I get that, and we all get that. But what happens when it, when it, when it just goes longer and longer and longer? And so even when there's times of, of transitions and troubles, and even when those times get long, there has to be this continual search for some kind of balance in the middle of that. There has to be. <clears throat> so, for instance, eating well during stress, a little bit of exercise is better than no exercise. Practicing the presence of God <clears throat> for a few minutes is better than no minutes. Time with friends on the phone is better than no time with friends. People falsely begin to believe I can't do the things that balance does at all because I can't do them at the level I was doing them before. And that, that creates problems for us. During disasters, <clears throat> when, we've, when, when we've worked with tornado disaster or Oliver worked at Katrina, people lovingly bring in truckloads of food. Americans tend to be loving people. It most often is comfort foods that increase physical stress. <laughs> And so sometimes we have to say, stop bringing thank you, but Pizza Hut, but no more pizza. Because when people are stressed, <clears throat> certain foods increase their stress. And so we have to be wise about this. And, and we can't control the stressful events, but we can control some of the things within that. I had a chaplain who, in a disaster scenario, would not slow down, would not pace himself. He was resolute that he was going to help everybody. He became a casualty himself. I had to provide care to the chaplain, because he, and he couldn't provide it to anyone else because he would not stop and take care of himself. And so if the leader goes down, those are leading might suffer. And so <clears throat> if you're wired that way, if you're wired to be a helper, which is a good thing, it's not a bad thing, then you have to realize self-care is good leadership. Self-care is good leadership. <clears throat> Selfishness is bad leadership. Self-care is not. Second, learn to say no with courage and wisdom and love. And then <clears throat> if you're wired to, for a lot of introspection and reflection and guilt, then once you say no with courage, wisdom, and love, and it was a right no, then leave it with God. Don't go back and pick that scab. Because <clears throat> some people, once they say no then they, they, are, they are just almost undone with guilt and remorse and feeling bad and sad. And so it's almost like, well, you might as well have said no, a yes, because you're spending as much energy on the no as you would have spent on the yes. So it's really important to, <clears throat> to say the no and then leave it with God. <clears throat> no can be hard. No can bring anger from people. It can leave, people can leave your group. People can talk about you. But a strategic no is essential to living by vision. Yes, if yes is your life strategy, then no are all the things that potentially divert you from your life strategy. And yes to what God has called you to is always going to require some strategic no's. You know this, <clears throat> but you have my permission to, and my <clears throat> ad, admonition to say no. And uh, Christy and I, I'll, I'll pick on Christy, but we were talking about <laughs> we, were t- <laughs> we, were t- we were talking about faint- Halloween's coming up in two weeks. And, um, and she, yeah, she gave me the, the nod to go ahead. I can tell. <laughs> 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 and, and, I, and she said, 
and this is, this is how she's wired. She's wonderful. She said, so should I cancel a group on Halloween? I said, I'm not even going to answer that question. I don't even need to answer that question. She goes, and she said, well, I just need your permission. I said, no, you, might, you need my permission to have group on Halloween, not to cancel group on Halloween. Because I know what she, I said, no, you're going to have group, but I'm going to be with our grandkids having fun if you want to have group. <clears throat> but the way she's wired, she's just wired with this, and that's part of why I married her, this really high sense of, of duty and do the right thing and take care of people. And so, so saying no for her to people has a real strong pull, but she does it. As a group leader, a key part of, of strategic investment and a part of this saying no and saying yes is to invest in a couple of key people, a person, key people at a time. Make them your priority. Uh, y'all, everybody know, let me just say it, Kevin is really good at this. If you want to talk to someone who's really good at this, there's a number of people in the room, but Kevin is exceptionally good at investing in people. <clears throat> and the squeaky wheel may get the grease, but they, but they shouldn't necessarily get your best investments. And that's what's behind our formerly called LITs, now called leader assistant model. And this is, it's a proven model for reproducing Great Commission list leaders, that key investment in emerging leaders and developing leaders. And, in, and like in, in your guys' group, it's, it's more of a peer-to-peer investment. And then you guys together are investing in other people. But one of the models I grew up with, grew up with in the faith, was the, the fat if you came out of the, the faithful, available, teachable, many of you grew up in, if you grew up in a BSU or, or navigators, you look for people who are faithful, available, and teachable. And I bought into that early on, then I realized it's okay, but who's actually helping these people become faithful, available, teachable? I'm, I'm relying on someone else to get them there, and then, okay, you hand them off to me, I'll take it from there. You know, so I, now it's not necessarily looking for people who are already that developed, it's who does God want you to invest in? Because there are people who are waiting to take off who don't currently appear to be faithful, available, teachable. And I get it. If they don't want help, they don't want help. But there are people who don't look fat, faithful, available, teachable, but they're waiting for an invitation. They're waiting for an investment. So <clears throat> the challenge there is that as, as group leaders, meetings and member care can take up most of our energy and time, leaving less time for leadership development and for mission it's always going to be attention depending on how you're wired. And so I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying just keep wrestling with that. Stay aware of, of the importance of investing your life in someone else, a few people. And, and if you look in the mirror and say, who am I to invest in somebody? You are somebody God has called and equipped. And, and everybody in this room, I would be happy to have them investing in somebody. Uh, you're, you're that kind. So whatever you think when you see, look in the mirror, um, you're somebody who it would be a great treasure to someone else to invest in them. Number, the, the fourth thing I would say is, is re- respond to crisis strategically. <clears throat> and I know every group goes through times of crisis, and sometimes it's legitimate crisis. Sometimes it turns into a long crisis. I know Joy and Eric, you guys just had times where it was just crisis after crisis, a lot of health, a lot of it health related, but there's sometimes it's, it's broken relationships, broken people. And I think the questions to ask there are, do I have to act now? Should I act at all? Should I act like they're asking me to act or a totally different way? Because people will have a legitimate crisis and they'll ask me to act in this way. And I'm convinced 
That's a legitimate crisis, but I should not act in the way they want me to act, and that cannot go over well. <clears throat> so complaint is not a good strategy, and neither is guilt. So in a crisis, what's God called me to? What does faithfulness look like? I had a friend who had developed a really good strategy for dealing with his very needy family members. He has, um, currently has two of them in prison, and he's by nature a, a, a helper. And so he, he asked me, <clears throat> you know, he, he saw some signs of movement in a family member, and he wanted to jump in and help. And I said, have you seen these kind of moments before? Yeah. Have they turned into movements? No. I said, well, maybe this moment will turn into a movement. But I think you should stick with your, with your settled strategy that you have right now, which is offer this much help and not this much help, and then see if that moment turns into a movement. He had a sense of urgency because he saw this opening of hope in a, in a moment, but it's important to, to stick with what you feel like are your fundamental strategies. The head of the Air Force said a couple of years ago, after some wing commanders had knee-jerk responded and made things work, he said, if someone's not going to lose life, limb, or eyesight, then slow down. Slow down. Dallas Willard said we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. And I think there's wisdom in that in so many ways, but it applies even to responding to the emergencies of other people. And I have, in my ministry, sometimes done more harm by acting in a hurry than by slowly, methodically, when the circumstances allowed for it, waiting for some things to unfold. <clears throat> there are times when you can't wait, <clears throat> but you need to ask yourself, is this one of those times? That goes all the way back to if, you, if, if they are con convinced it's an emergency that needs you to act right now and you don't, they're not going to like you. So we go all the way back to the beginning of the talk. Are you going to live by your vision, by what God's called you to, or by whether people like you or not? That's a practical application of this. And then lead like you're on a long walk. <clears throat> this doesn't mean a long walk can sound boring, but a long walk can be full of passion, but it's passion with pace. We're not going to lead very long or very well if we don't pace ourselves. There are people who are called to a burnout, sacrifice kind of life. I'm convinced that God's called a few people that. And, I, and I've read their books. I'm challenged by them. I have some people maybe I know that kind of live that kind of life. But biblically and historically, that's, that's more rare than common. More common biblically and historically is that God calls people to wear out, not burn out. And so you, you, I think you need to fix that in your mind. God's called you to wear out over a long period of time. And you get to decide how you're going to leave, how you're going to lead. And so what that, what that would mean would be, I think I understand what you want from me. I think I understand what you think you need from me. But here's what I believe I can and should give you. And I've, and I've had people respond to me as when I say that or something like that by saying, well, you're trying to control me. You're trying to control me. Because when you say no to someone and they really desperately think you should do this, whatever, then their automatic go-to is they're controlling me. And that sounds odd, but that's kind of the go-to. And I found it useful to say in those times, I'm not trying to control your choices. I'm controlling mine. I'm responsible to God for my choices. You're responsible to God for your choices. So me saying no to this is me controlling me. It's not me controlling you. And so <clears throat> ministry burnout is optional. You are there to, to help. You are not there to be their hope. 
there is a, a 1956 John Wayne movie called The Searchers. Anybody seen The Searchers? Oliver, I know you've seen it. David, yeah. <laughs> and the, the American Film Institute calls it the all-time best Western ever. But in the film, there's a scene where John, the, the, the story is John Wayne, has, some of his family has been kidnapped by Comanches, and they've taken off some, some women. And, um, and so they're, they're looking for the family, and they embark on what's going to turn into a five-year search, hence the name Searchers. And the younger, passionate member of the group takes off full speed, and meanwhile, the Duke is just sort of you know, on his horse, stops, rests his horse, gets his horse some water. The young guy is just a cloud of dust. In the film, eventually, you find the young guy walking because he killed his horse. And John, meanwhile, is still on his horse and actually is able to help pick up and rescue the girl. And so there is this, this, um, this model that, that passion is without pace, but that's just not accurate. The, the truth is is uh, real passion, has a pace. And one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I think it applies, I I know it applies to you, not just to preachers. Paul said, I came in weakness and in fear and with much trembling, which is a real important verse to know about Paul, because you would never think of that as Paul Paul being that way. So when when you saw him, he was like, gosh, this guy's making me nervous because he's so nervous. He said, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so your faith would not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And so this, I think, speaks to the whole thing about boundaries, is if we we really are going to make sure that people see this as God's power, then it it can't just look like all of our energy and all of our sacrifice, and we want to give energy and sacrifice. But in the end, we want people to rely on God, not on us. And I think it's an important verse to keep in front of us.